Welcome to the Writer's Block Party Podcast with your hosts Meredith Bond and Prue Warren, where they discuss every aspect of a writer's life, from the craft of writing and editing, through publishing and marketing, and finally into building a global publishing empire. Here is Mary and Prue. Welcome to the Writer's Block Party Podcast. I am Meredith Bond, one of your two co-hosts, and I am here as always with Prudence Warren. Prue is looking as beautiful as ever today. She is all right. She's laughing, but we're going to ignore that. And let me just tell you a little bit about Prue. Prue is sitting in a book-lined room. That's true. That that is all that I can see. And she's wearing a lovely orange sweater that brings out the pink in her cheeks. Her hair is as always brushed back. It's long and brown and full and so pretty. And she is just, she is a model older lady. A model lady. Older lady. Now, that's this is an interesting this is an interesting thing Meredith because our our topic today is imagery. <gasps> is it and now? <laughs> you're painting you're painting a picture. That's it's an immensely flattering picture. Now here's another form of imagery. Prue Warren is sitting in her beautiful book-lined library, moon-faced and plain as always. <laughs> right? Okay? You are sitting in your beautiful Kiev apartment. Looking like an elven queen, <laughs> lean, long, and beautiful, long, dark hair pulled back to show your beautiful eyes. You know, it's like, it's just not fair. Nobody looks in a Zoom screen and goes, man, I look good today. <laughs> no, nobody does. Nobody does it. And I'm not doing it now. So here you are painting a beautiful image with your words. And I am snorting because, <laughs> oh, man, is that wrong? it is not wrong you are wearing a lovely orange sweater well i'm wearing an orange sweater that's certainly (laughs) you know it's that we none of us ever see ourselves as others see us but i am i'll tell you i'm wearing an orange sweater that the cat has pulled a lot of threads out of and that's how i see it i see it as kind of a ratty orange sweater so to have it called out in any respect makes me want to go and change my shirt. Oh, Sorry, no. I honor you enough with a shirt that it was not rat pulled, cat pulled. That's okay. I'm wearing a, a 20-year-old flannel. So it's, it is elegant and it hangs on your frame like a model. No. You're just right, okay, all my life, over tall, way too heavy, very, very rounded. I admire admire the naturally lean and graceful so you know okay let's stop let's stop with this let's yes imagery (laughs) imagery when we are writing our books we need lovely descriptions but those descriptions need to be to do so much more than simply tell what people look like or simply show what a room looks like they need to tell us when we write a description, we are not writing a description. What actually we are doing is telling the reader about the POV character. There you go. I agree. Or setting a mood or a tone. 
Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I pulled some. I pulled some examples. So I'm ready for you when you're ready. Tell me. Good. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. Um, I did not pull any examples because I have been working furiously on finishing my book, which I did just before we came on. Oh, <laughs> that's a good day. Yes. Yay. Not only that, but I made it to 80,000 words. I am so thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me ask you this, Meredith, and this is not on the subject of imagery. When you finish a book, do you get a letdown? Do you get a little anticlimax sort of like, ugh, right? I mean... Shouldn't there be fanfares of trumpets and parades in your honor and there's really nothing? And so you feel kind of like, ugh. No, I get a little let down because it's finally over. And I know that the hard part is about to begin. Oh, you don't like the editing? I don't like the editing. I love the editing. I love I, the editing. You've taught, me, you've taught me so much about editing that I love the editing. Uh, I like it I, more than I used to, but I still don't love it. It just looks like opportunity to me. And the editing round looks like such good opportunity to me. I was last, it was, it was two nights ago. I had been writing all day on my book and I'm having so much fun with it and I'm enjoying it. And I finally pushed away from my desk and said, look, that's as much as I can handle. And I was wandering around the house going, what will I do now? And I thought, oh, I could go and finish that great book I'm reading. And I thought about it. I was like, what book am I reading? It's like, oh, it's the damn book I'm writing. I have to write it before I can finish it. <laughs> so I get, I get people talk about imposter syndrome and self-doubt and the internal critic. And I'm like, yeah, I don't have that. I think I'm awesome. <laughs> you are awesome. You're right. <laughs> I do get this sort of letdown. I do get a letdown when it's over. And I'm like, oh, that part's done. Anyway, okay, let's go back to imagery. Let's go back to imagery. Yes. So I sent you an, a picture that is that of, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with. It is a blue and green Venn diagram. And <laughs> in the blue section of the Venn diagram, it says what the author meant. And in the green section, it says what your English teacher thinks <laughs> the author meant. And the example is the curtains were blue. And what your teacher thinks is the curtains represent his immense depression and his lack of will to carry on. And what the author meant, the curtains were fucking blue. <laughs> this appeals to me particularly because I used to hate going to English class, high school and college, and especially poetry, where you take a poem and you'd read it and you'd be like, oh, that's pretty or that's upsetting or that's vigorous or whatever. And then the teacher would want to spend 45 minutes ripping the damn thing apart. And like you are, it's like explaining why a joke is funny. You <laughs> shred it. You either get it or you don't. Every now and then though, a writer will have been writing in code and I didn't know it. Like um, when I read Lolita, I was just by dumb luck, happened to pick up an annotated copy so that I was reading Lolita and on the next page was, okay, here's what that means. And I'm like, oh my God, there was so much more going on in that book than I realized because I wasn't paying attention to imagery and all these hidden little clues. It was like a puzzle. So I think there are times when the English teachers are right, but for the most part, it's the difference between reading a romance for joy and reading a romance for deeper hidden meaning. <laughs> yes. Which I don't think there is any of. I mean, well, not in 
Well, but I mean, then we could we could get into theme and maybe we should talk about theme because theme is very important. Have we talked about theme? I think we've talked about theme. We should well, definitely. We've talked about, we've talked, okay. All right. It doesn't matter. I'm putting it on the list. We'll talk about We'll talk about it again. Okay. Because a lot of what is deeper in a romance novel or, or really any genre fiction could be the deeper theme that the author is trying to get across. I don't like theme. <laughs> I just don't like it. What's the theme of your novel? I don't know. Shut up. It's me entertaining myself is always the theme of my novel. <laughs> I want to read you uh, an imagery example that I thought was was really nice. And this is, did you ever read Outlander, Diana Gabaldon? I have not. Okay. All right. In it, a woman goes back through time, through standing stones, and she meets up with a bunch of Scots, and they're all beautiful. (laughs) She is trying very hard to put a bandage on a wounded guy. She's a nurse. She's trying to bandage him. It's Jamie. He turns into her lover. He's and her husband, lovely. It's the middle of the night. There's no light. She can't see anything. There are no clean cloths to put on his wound. She's ripped strips from her slip, her rayon slip, to tie something around him. And he, you know, like it's not. It's not being successful. The rayon and linen strips I was working with were irritatingly elusive in the dark. They slipped away, eluding my grasp like fish darting away into the depths with a mocking flash of white bellies. Despite the chill, sweat sprang out onto my neck. I finally finished tying one end and reached for another, which persisted in slithering away behind the patient's back. Come back here, you, oh, you goddamn bloody bastard. Jamie had moved and the original end had come untied. (laughs) I think the image of fish slipping away is, is very, very useful in that, in that little tiny half a paragraph, I think she paints a really good image of frustration and chaos and the impossibility of her task. I thought that right. was really good image. Yeah. Um, I do have one example for you. Okay, good. Uh, well, actually, I have kind of two. But I was working with my coaching client, and he was trying to write the book description of his book that we have finished. Always get Yeah. And he started an image that then he didn't even consider completing. And I suggested it to him, (laughs) which is, you know, that's kind of my job. Um, But he, so what he wrote for his book description was some of the old Avalon don't like the changes happening around them. And they seem, seem to see me as the problem. If they could drop me in a lake with a rock tied to my feet, they would probably walk away while whistling a tune. Through all this, I'm trying to figure out who I'm growing into and how to make sure I don't drown. Really nice. It's quite nice. It's quite nice. And the tie to rock, right? Sinking him in the lake and making sure he doesn't drown, it comes back together very nicely. Right. So I suggested the the make sure I don't drown because he was trying to finish that sentence who I'm trying, who I'm trying to figure, you know, I'm trying to figure out who I'm growing into. And he needed, he knew he needed a second half of that. And I was like, well, work with the rock tied to my feet in the lake. It's really nice. It is. You do that. 
It's really nice. And it also, it also creates, I don't know if this is true, but it creates the image is of a people who are, I would say sort of nature-based and their, their form of execution is, uh, is there, there's no one's being electrocuted. No one's being shot. I mean, it tells me a little bit something about the culture that he's trying to survive in. Yes. Yes. And, and the, I liked it because rocks tied to my feet in the lake for me, at least, it elicits um, thoughts of the the Salem witch trials. Oh, yes. Very good. And these are magical people. And so it's as nice. if they are witches being drowned for being witches. Nice. And so That's right. I, I like that very much. I think it's very good. Okay, here's my next example. It's from James Thurber, Thurber Carnival, one of my favorite stories. Short stories of all time is The Night the Bed Fell, which is riotously funny. It's, it's this, he's in the story, he is maybe, say, 16 years old. Um, a cousin has come to visit who is sleeping in his room with him. It's late at night. Uh, James Thurber is lying on an army cot. He's given the cousin the bed and he's lying on an army cot, which has sides that draw up like a drop leaf table. If he rolls over too far, the whole, the whole cot will flip him. And he does, he flips, he gets, he, he flips himself in the middle of the night. Everybody in the house is asleep. It flicked him. He's a very sound sleeper. He doesn't actually wake up. It just sort of goes, something happened and goes back to sleep. But everybody else in the house hears the sound and they all immediately interpret it as something horrible has happened. So <laughs> chaos erupts all around him and it takes him a long time to wake up and just madness has ensued. This is just one <laughs> this is just one line which strikes me as so witty and funny. It's such a good image that I think it sets the tone for the way this man wrote. Foggy with sleep, I now suspected in my turn that the whole uproar was being made in a frantic endeavor to extricate me from what must have been an unheard of and perilous situation. Get me out of this, I bawled. Get me out. I think I had the nightmarish belief that I was entombed in a mine. <laughs> I just find that I find that imagery fabulous and entertaining and it sets the whole it sets the whole stage for everybody else in the family racing around assuming the house was on fire or burglars were breaking in or the bed fell on father the night the bed fell. I just think that's really really lovely. <laughs> yes it is. <laughs> the only other um, image I have is from Gone with the Wind. Oh, good. The very mystery of him excited her curiosity like a door that had neither lock nor key. Ooh. Isn't that nice? Ooh, very nice. I think that's fantastic. I mean, you know, the romance writer in me just says, oh, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Okay, here's my next one. Um, a, a million and 12 years ago, Howard Pyle wrote a series of uh, fairy tales. And this is from a very tattered copy of a book of mine called Twilight Land. And I just thought I needed an image for you that was different from the romances and the humor that I focus on. So here's, here's a paragraph drawn at random from one of the, rom from one of the fairy tales in uh, Twilight Land. The third evening of their journey, the two travelers came to a little hut, neat enough, but as poor as poverty. 
And there, the comrade knocked upon the door and asked for lodging. In the house lived a poor man and his wife. And though the two were as honest as the palm of your hand, and as good and kind as rain and springtime, they could hardly scrape enough of a living to keep body and soul together. Nevertheless, they made the travelers welcome. Mm. I love honest as the palm of your hand. Yes. I, it's, it's, it's a phrase I'd never, I've never heard that phrase before. But I mean, that does feel like you think about it. Okay, my palm of my hand's pretty honest. That's what I can count on. <laughs> Something that I think is really interesting. When I was looking up some information about imagery, I actually came across a website that simply is a very, very, very long list of similes. Oh, wow. Yes. And, and uh, we can put it in the show notes if you like. Okay. But I think what's best about this is not that you can find similes to use in your novel, but you can find similes that have been used and then get creative yourself. Mm-hmm. Can you give an example or two? Oh, absolutely. Hang on for a second. Let me just uh, you open know, up the website. While you're looking, I, I, I was thinking about you and I are going to do uh, a segment on um, good openings. Uh-huh. But one of the things, one of the books that I pulled is Polar Star by Martin Cruz Smith, the guy who wrote Corky Park. Hmm. And talking about similes, my my first editor said, you everything you do is a simile. It gets weary to the ear. Don't do it anymore. Yeah, uh, it's true. But here is, this is the opening paragraph of Polar Star. And it is, the sentences are three similes exactly constructed one after the other. They're on a, you don't need to know it, but it's on a factory fishing ship. Like a beast, the net came steaming up the ramp and into the sodium lamps of the trawl deck. Like a gleaming pelt, mats of red, blue, orange strips covered the mesh, plastic chafing hair designed to ease the net's way over the rocks of the sea bottom. Like rank breath, the exhalation of the sea's cold enveloped the hair in a halo of its own colors, brilliant in the weepy night. Yeah, I think that's too much. Three similes in a row. But yeah, you know, I, I when I first read it, when you when you read it through, when you're when you're eating up a book, when you're not stopping to analyze it, when you're when you're sliding into a book like you're sliding into a warm bath, when it's when it's done well enough that you just don't even see the words for the power of them. I've read this book five times. And, and it wasn't until I started looking for imagery. The net pulls up. The, the reason it's interesting is because the net is also pulling up the body of a woman who fell overboard and got caught in the net. Mm. So there's a dead body in the net. It's this. This begins our. This begins our mystery. And I never noticed the similes until now. So hmm. so I think that I think that my editor may have been wrong. I think huh. if it's if the book sucks you in, all the rules can go out the window. I think all things live in service to the story. Okay. Yeah. If you didn't notice them, then then it worked. It worked for me. Yeah. Okay. I know okay. So just randomly, these are in alphabetical order. Uh-huh. Uh, as delicate and as fair as a lily. Every phrase is like the flash of a scimitar. Oh, see, that's nicer. I think delicate and fair as a lily is a little hackneyed, but... The flash of a scimitar does put me in a very specific place. Yeah. Impressive as a warrant of arrest for high treason. 
hmm, like a pageant of the golden year in rich memorial pomp, the hours go by. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. That makes me want to know. I mean, hours going by sounds like tedium, but the first half is like pomp. It's pomp. It's luxury. It's opulence. So that's interesting. Yeah. But of course, not, not all imagery is a metaphor or a simile. That's true. That's true. Some of them are. Some of them are okay. The last one I have, oddly enough, I had to go on Amazon and do a read inside because I don't seem to have my copy of Kathleen Woodwiss's The Flame and the Flower, which was my first romance of all time. Yeah. So here's the opening paragraph of, of The Flame and the Flower, which was written in 1970-what-something mm-hmm. and is probably considered totally dated right now. And, and this is pretty heavy-handed. Ah, this is pretty heavy-handed imagery. Here's the opening paragraph. June 23, 1799. Somewhere in the world, time no doubt whistled by, whistled by on taut and widespread wings. But here in the English countryside, it plodded slowly, painfully, as if it trod the rutted road that stretched across the moors on blistered feet. The hot, sweltering air was motionless. Dust hung above the road, still reminding the restless of a coach that had passed several hours before. A small farm squatted dismally beneath the humid haze that lay over the marsh. The thatched cottage stood between spindly yews, and with shutters open and door ajar, it seemed to stare as if aghast at some off-colored jest. Nearby, a barn sagged in poor repair about its rough-hewn frame, and beyond, a thin growth of wheat fought vainly in the boggy soil for each inch of growth. My goodness. It's that's pretty. Uh, it's it's not a, it's not subtle. No, <laughs> that, that's that's painting with a palette knife, man. That is icing a thick cake. <laughs> <laughs> it is so very true. Wow, that is something. That is really something. And there are metaphors in there, and there are similes in there, but the overall effect is less metaphor and more tone and mood. You know what you're getting into with this book. You are not, you're not, um, it's not delicate. Right. This is not sophisticated. Jump in. <laughs> I'm also amused by the concept of a day that was hot and sweaty in the English countryside. Because we, I mean, you're better traveled than I am. But anytime I've been in England, right, a sunny day is like, oh, oh my God, it's sunny. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's that reminds me. Of yep, a dark of and them. stormy night. Ah. Wait, let me see if I can find the full sentence. I used to have it right at hand. Yeah, I think you've read this to me once before and I loved it. It was so clever. Yes, here it is. It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents, except at occasional intervals when it was checked by a violent gust of wind, which swept up the streets, for it is in London that our scene lies rattling along the housetops and fiercely agitating the scanty flame of the lamps that struggled against the darkness. I'd say that's imagery. Yep, sure is. I'd say I'd say we found it. What is that from? That is from a book called Paul Clifford by Edward George Bulwer-Lytton. Bulwer-Lytton. I knew it was Bulwer-Lytton attached. Yes. It's pretty um, uh, and of course uh it has spawned a contest. Right. It is, it is a little overdone. 
Yes. Um, to, to write the longest sentence. So actually the, the website that I just pulled, just read that from, gave some winning entries from recently. Uh, the grand prize was, hmm, thought Abigail as she gazed languidly from the veranda past the bright white piano and the cerulean sea beyond where dolphins played and seagulls sang, where splashing surf sounded like the tin-tin tabulation of a thousand tiny bells, where great gray whales bellowed and the sunlight sparkled off the myriad of sequins on the fly fish's bow ties. Time to get my meds checked. There is a short story, I think, by Michael Shabon, which is two sentences long. There's <laughs> one sentence that's a paragraph, and there's one sentence that's three pages. <laughs> I, I, was, I was just looking around to see if I could find it, but I cannot remember. I wonder if maybe it wasn't Michael Shabon. Maybe it was Dave Eggers. There are two more sentences here that I need to read to you. Just okay, good. Are hysterical. The winner of the adventure genre... Leopold looked up at the arrow piercing the skin of the dirigible with a sort of wondrous dismay. The wheezy shriek was just the sort of sound he always imagined a baby moose being beaten with a pair of accordions might make. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. <laughs> uh, and, and I like this one from fantasy fiction. Toads of glory, slugs of joy, sang Groin the dwarf as he trotted jovially down the path before a great dragon ate him because the author knew that this story was a train wreck after he typed the first few words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that guy was on deadline when he wrote that. I guarantee he had better things he could have been doing and he was just amusing himself. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite images is from um, Douglas Adams, who wrote a book called Last Chance to See. He's famous for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and others. But he did one book that was not sort of comedic science fiction called Last Chance to See, which is worth the read. It's incredible. But he said that he said early morning sounds in somewhere in Indonesia um, gave an excellent impression of what it was like to fall into the pit of hell with the London Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sometimes you slide into a book like a bathtub. Sometimes you just have to stop and admire the words. Yes. <laughs> One other thing about imagery that I was thinking about was names. Oh, go girl. Names have such meaning. And as romance authors, we're told to find names that sound, especially for heroes that sound hard and masculine, that have hard consonant, you know, um, Dirk. Dirk. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Rock. Yeah, exactly. I'm with you. I'm with you. That's really funny. <laughs> and I, one of the first characters that I wrote, very first characters, of course, my first book that I wrote um, was called The the Merry Marquis. And so I, I named the hit hero Richard. Nice, strong name. But there was a comedic character in the book. And my husband named him. He named him <laughs> Sinjin Fungi Phipps. Sinjin? Sinjin is a great name. Just all, you don't even have to go any further. Sinjin is the, great, <laughs> the greatest possible name. I love that name. 
It is. And, and especially because it's spelled St. John. Yes, yeah, spelled huh? St. John. Did they call him Sinji? No, because his last name, because in, in England at the time, men were always called by their last name. And his last name, if you spell it out in English, is Fotheringay Phipps with a hyphen. Fotheringay hyphen Phipps. But in British English, it's pronounced Fungi Phipps. Right. And so he's called Fungi. It's like the, the name Chamondale, which is yes. pronounced Chumley. Chumley. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All those crazy Brits. But Fungi, his, I, he's a comedic character and I love him so much. I, of course, gave him his own book. Good. Um, <laughs> and in the book, there are three sisters who are sitting around chatting and one of them has just met Fungi for the first time. And she mentions that his name is Fungi and her two sisters burst out laughing and say, what is he, a mushroom? <laughs> <laughs> and what I had one, one reviewer who said, who just did not have a sense of humor and said that yeah. was the most ridiculous thing they'd ever read in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that opinion. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but th the interesting thing about fungi is that as we were talking in the beginning, there is more than meets the eye. Right. So Fungi is a dandy. He wears the most outlandish clothes he can possibly find. But before he was called Fungi and before he became a dandy, he was called Sinjim and he was a scholar. And something bad happened to him where the woman of his dreams, the woman he loved with all his heart, told him she was leaving him. And she said, it's because you will never amount to anything because oh, you are God. a scholar. And so he changed himself overnight. He went from being Sinjin the scholar to Fungi the dandy in the hopes of winning this woman back. Wow. Wow. Good story. But because Fungi became this dandy that people would laugh at and just think was, you know, was funny and it, with a funny name. When it came down to his cousin who got married, choosing his, his child's godfather, he passed Fungi over because, because of his name and because he had forgotten who the man was. <laughs> and Fungi was horribly hurt by this. Because he said, I'm your cousin, I'm your best friend, and you're not choosing me to be your son's grandfather, godfather. Do you forget who I am with this? You see the facade. You've forgotten what's underneath it. You are. You have now ventured into theme. Well, a little bit, yeah. And so in Fungi's book, he starts out being called Fungi. But by the end of the book, the heroine is calling him Sinjin. Of course she is. Of course because she, is. she sees the man yep. underneath. Nice. 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 And imagery. Imagery. You know, it makes me wonder next week we're supposed to, we, you and I had planned on talking about how to write in multiple points of view, but maybe we should swap that. You want to do a podcast on imagery? I mean, sure. a theme? On theme? Sure. Absolutely. I love theme. I think it's so fascinating. Theme. Okay. So listener, yeah. next week we're going to talk about theme. Oh, and, and might, by the way, go ahead. Fungi's book is called A Dandy in Disguise. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> on Amazon, I'm sure. Of course, it's available. Only it's, it's only available on Amazon. It's actually in KU. 
Ah, okay. You book. There you yes. go. All right. All right, Meredith, I am going to, you email me the list of uh, where yep. people can find the similes and yep. I'll put that in the show notes. Absolutely. And we'll start thinking about theme and we'll talk about that next week. Perfect. Lovely. All right. Thank you. Have for a helping. wonderful week. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. That's it for the writer's block party this week. We don't want you getting so drunk on knowledge that you can't drive your laptop safely. But next week we'll be here before you know it, so check out the website at thewritersblockpartypodcast.com. One word. That's where you can find our archive of past podcasts and a place where you can get in touch with Mary and Prue or ask questions for the next podcast. Write with joy, friends, and see you next week. Thank you.